0: Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is business and climate expert, Ian Watt. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you. We're going to talk about some of the issues that are coming up for the Future of Climate Action event in a few weeks' time. What are the challenges you're seeing around companies getting to net zero?
1: It depends on the boundaries applied, uh, the timeframe embraced, and I guess the context that the company's operating in and sourcing from. Some parts of the puzzle these days have actually become relatively simple. If you're sourcing electricity from a part of the world with established renewable energy infrastructure, then you might be sorted, both in terms of measuring your footprint and tackling it. If, however, you're sourcing multiple agricultural products from various parts of the world in a dynamic way that changes from year to year, not only is understanding your footprint much harder, but doing something about it is as well. It does seem to me that in many cases, companies are still fighting against the underlying systems that matter. So the energy system, the transport system, the agricultural system, and those systems need to change radically if we're going to build a net zero society. And that makes becoming net zero hard for a company that finds themselves in those more difficult circumstances. It was never going to be easy, however, and I'm not sure it should be. It's an ambition driven by necessity in terms of having a livable planet in which business can thrive
0: rather than practicality. All right, you mentioned timeframes just now. I think it's clear that many companies are taking a more sensible approach to thinking about timeframes and also interim targets. Are you seeing companies adopting this kind of roadmap approach? I think there's a real tension point there
1: because... The science now mandates that companies, if, if we're serious about 1.5 degrees, that the timeframe within which ambitious companies need to be thinking about net zero is exceptionally tight. And I would say it's actually in a 2030 time frame. So talking about interim targets becomes quite tricky when the end goal is only eight years away. But you're right to flag that there's times that if the, the targets are too ambitious too soon, then when they come to report their progress, it's essentially to say we haven't got there yet. There's a real tension point there is what, what's a practical change a company can make in a very short term that puts them in the right direction and for them to be positively evaluated by the investor and stakeholder com- community for that, whilst not losing track of we're kind of in panic stations now in terms of staying within the budget for 1.5 degrees. And the most ambitious companies out there really need to be going above and
0: beyond. I saw a report, very recent report from Carbon Tracker, their absolute impact report, looking at the impacts of oil majors. And, of course, they pointed out that 14 out of 15 oil majors have net zero plans, but these lack credibility because of the time frame. So BP, they pick out as the most ambitious, but even their targets are only a 40% reduction in emissions by 2030, when IPCC says it needs to be 50%. So the most ambitious of the oil majors isn't even there. And, of course, they point out that Chevron is an example of a company, of an oil major that's got no ambitions at all. And just as a side note... CCS, carbon capture and storage, is, re- is seen by many as the answer to some of the conundrum around getting high emitting sectors to net zero. It is expensive and unproven at scale, according to Carbon Tracker. So, big concerns there around timeframes in a vastly emitting sector and also some of the technology that many of them are relying on. The tools are developing. We've got a lot of tools that have developed over the past five years or so. So, do you think that the sustainable development goals and the use of science-based targets have been game-changing. In my work, which is very much climate-oriented, the SDGs
1: haven't played that much of a role in the work I've done in terms of prompting innovation and change. They're fairly ubiquitous these days in terms of how leading companies are discussing their impacts and efforts. So they're actually out there and playing a role I do worry a bit that there's a fair degree of retrofitting going on, companies carrying on with whatever they were going to do. And, and often that can be quite ambitious stuff that they're focusing on their priorities. And then after the fact, you can cut, find stories in and amongst the, the broad ranging SDGs and sort of say, Here, here's a tick, here's a story we've got in this space. The science-based targets are much more prominent in my work, and I think they really have cornered the market for target setting. So yes, they've been game-changing in that territory. And on the positive side, I think they've very much changed the fundamental thinking about target setting, where the ambition has switched from what looks feasible. I think back in the day, companies would often look at their footprint and think, well, what do we think we can achieve in the next five years? And the target would flow from that. And of course, what the SBTIs have done is switch that round as we're now looking at targets based on what's necessary. Necessary in order to stay within certain carbon budgets or under a certain temperature threshold. So that is a big change and a very positive change. On the other side, I do think, however, that the egalitarian approach they promote, in which every company is asked to do their fair share, is actually hugely problematic and becoming more so given how tight the carbon budgets are now. We know that there are many laggards out there. The reality is that the SBTIs appeal to ambitious companies. It's the leading companies. And if we're getting the the most ambitious companies to only do their fair share, given that laggers exist, we're guaranteeing that the remaining carbon budgets will be exceeded. We need leading companies to do much more than their fair share if we're going to be serious about staying within the carbon budget, particularly for 1.5 degrees. So absolutely game-changing. How it's playing out in
0: practice,
1: I fear that it's actually reining in the ambition of some of the leading companies.
0: Is the solution to that then, that regulation needs to play a greater role? Because if you have a situation where you're appealing to the better nature of certain businesses and leading companies, if in fact everyone wasn't required to take a science-based approach to a greater extent and do their fair share, then that would be an instance where we'd like to get where we need to. Possibly. And in some ways, that critique I've given of setting that
1: benchmark. And I would say now, and that's the the advice I give to companies, that a science-based target absolutely is something they should embrace, but it should be the baseline upon which they then think about innovation and leadership rather than being leadership in and of itself. Now, that baseline could in time come from regulation. It could also come from investor pressure. And we're seeing that now that investors are asking more and demanding more of companies they're investing in. There are many different drivers that are causing companies to do more. My framing would be that an SBTI is the starting point to build out an ambitious climate strategy rather than the end.
0: I think in around science-based targets and the sustainable development goals, we are seeing an awful lot more collaboration. They provide, as you say, a baseline approach. So companies then can provide that as a baseline for collaboration. There's a lot of talk about collaboration, a lot of talk about, you know, we can't do this in our own type conversations. Are you seeing those? Are you seeing them increasing? Yes
1: and no. I actually fear that an overemphasis on measurement and actually being able to report precise numbers of owned carbon uh, or, or carbon reductions to investors and other stakeholders, I fear that that's actually stifling collaboration. If we do collaboration well and innovatively, it's going to lead to carbon savings across a number of parties and entities. And whilst that should be celebrated, I worry that it complicates things for a company that wants to have a distinct, discrete footprint with no risk of double counting and be able to report that to the world getting involved in sort of more creative, innovative collaborations where the carbon savings are maybe displaced into the future, shared amongst different entities. It it becomes difficult to talk about those in a world that really puts an emphasis on tell me what your footprint is and a reduction there. Everyone seems to agree that collaboration is essential, and it is, and there will be examples out there, but I, I struggle to pull one out to say, here's one that's working very effectively in achieving the goals. And and is working in a way where the companies are comfortable talking about those sort of shared carbon savings that come out at the end.
0: How do you think we can get beyond that then? It's one of these uh, situations where the perfect is the enemy of the good. To so be comfortable at sharing these things because it's progress.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a mantra that's been around ever since I started in this field 30 years ago is this idea of what gets measured gets managed. And it's both true. But I think what it has done over time is put a focus on what's easily measurable rather than on what really matters. And I think there needs to be space either from the regulator or from investors or for stakeholders more broadly to create space for ambitious companies to be creative and innovative, to experiment and to sometimes get things wrong. And I know the great fear there is you can't step away too much from show us what your footprint is and show us it's declining. And and rightly so. We can't create too much space for companies to say, give us 10 years or 20 years to sort this out. We haven't got the balance quite right That I think there should be more scope for companies to innovate and experiment and be honest and transparent about what's working, what isn't working, and to plant seeds for future carbon reductions as well.
0: We're hearing a lot about the development of natural climate solutions. What do you think are the natural climate solutions that will work in different contexts, and are they more than just a useful tool in the box?
1: Right, First of all, I'm very excited about nature-based solutions. I think the bigger issue is less what's the nature-based solution, it's actually how do we go about financing and supporting those solutions. I'm really interested in the whole world of blue carbon, particularly coastal carbon, whether it's kelp or mangrove or seagrasses. Not only do you have carbon savings, but you also start getting win-wins out there as well. So coastal mangroves don't just store carbon. They offer coastal protection against storm surges and sea level rise. They also are essential for healthy fisheries. So you can start to imagine the idea of a nature-based solution. there, really having all sorts of benefits for society. My fear, however, is that the primary model for financing them for the time being is an offsetting style approach. So nature-based solutions across the board hold the potential for multiple gigatons worth of annual carbon sequestration. Where we're at in terms of the carbon budgets and so on, we desperately need those things to make a gross contribution to the planetary carbon balance. If we net those benefits off, especially if we net it off to companies that aren't reducing their baselines it feels like a huge wasted opportunity to me. Now, I'm relatively, I think, for ambitious companies, I think offsetting should be an acceleration option for ambitious companies uh, out there. So I'm not anti-offsetting per se. (laughs) But I think one of the arguments for offsetting has always been that it brings finance into territory that would otherwise struggle for funding. So I'm quite comfortable for now in the time being that the carbon markets are bringing the funding together to get nature-based solutions going. But over time, I would really like those gigatons to be gross contributors. So I would like to see other financing models emerge too. And I think that's the biggest challenge for nature-based solutions moving forward, is what's the right way of financing them such that they make the best contribution to society. Yeah,
0: It is pretty clear that offsetting works for sectors and companies that are doing all they can to decarbonise as well. It's part of the process. You can't offset your way to net zero, and that's obviously very clear. What are the three things you're looking for going forwards?
1: Firstly, I'd really like to see a step change in ambition. Net zero by 2050 just isn't anywhere near ambitious enough if we're serious about 1.5 degrees. Then secondly, I think I'd really like to see companies doing more to explore and embrace their role as potential agents of systemic change. Net zero will be much easier for everyone if our energy system, our transport system, our agriculture system, and so on are transformed. I'd actually take the net zero conversation almost away from this hardcore measurement approach towards a company's baseline, even an expanded baseline. That stuff is still essential, but I'd bring it more into territory around lobbying and engagement and advocacy more broadly. If you're a net zero company, I want to see what you're doing to help change these wider systems that we rely on. And linked to that I do think investors and rating agencies, stakeholders more broadly, need to do a better job of appreciating and valuing nuanced and innovative approaches to net zero and carbon reductions. So the interventions and collaborations that drive those types of systemic changes, but which might not necessarily lead to short term reductions within a currently defined carbon boundary should be encouraged. Yeah, those would be the three things I'd probably focus on.
0: So I guess we're looking at things you need to always remember, it's not just about 2030. 2030 is very, very important. We must be acting immediately, but we need to be thinking about the things that will be the solutions further away as well. So we have to be developing systems now that will be the ones we will be using in 30 years' time, 40 years' time, 50 years' time. Yes. And actually, we need companies
1: to be part in framing that conversation as well. I still think one of the biggest excuses governments around the world give for climate inaction or Nowadays, it's less climate inaction. It's more a case of the justification for slow action is that if we go too fast, too soon, it's going to be bad for the economy. And I think we need more businesses stepping up and saying, actually, if you let the world go beyond 1.5 degrees, that's going to be terrible for the economy and terrible for my business. It's a much more effective voice. I mean, environmentalists can make that case, but it just doesn't land in society nearly as effectively as if businesses step up and start saying, no, we, we need strong action on climate for the future health of our business.
0: Let's see what happens. There's a lot that needs to happen very quickly. and There's a lot that needs to happen more slowly. But for now, Ian, thanks very much for joining us to talk about some of these big climate issues.
1: Pleasure.